As we now turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, uh, our text this morning will be from verse 15 through verse 22. I would like to begin by backing up to verse 14 where we left off last Lord's Day so we can see this uh, in its context here. So hear with me now the word of God. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Our Father in heaven, give us a greater understanding of the kingdom and what we pray for when we say, Thy kingdom come. Grant us an understanding of the nature of Jesus' messianic reign and the nature of his kingdom into which you have saved us and called us, the nature in which we are to go about the continued mission of Christ here on this earth and the character that each one of us have been endowed with the Spirit and continue to work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us great courage and great hope in the gospel, in the manner, in the method, in the way that you have revealed that it will triumph over the entirety of this earth and over all the nations and over all peoples. And may we be willing agents that will go forth and declare this manner and this way of Messiah Jesus. And we pray this in his strong name. Amen. You may be seated. This past week, we received an encouraging report that Kelly sent out about the vast number of Christian converts from China and Iran, two countries that have strong persecution against Christians, and received an encouraging report of, quite in spite of these severe persecutions, how many people are coming to Christ and continue to come to Christ in the face of those great difficulties. It would seem contrary to human reason, that that would be going on, but the Spirit works contrary to fleshy human reason. And it was reported that China is even concerned that coming to Christ, or the Christians that are coming to Christ, and the vast numbers there would soon outweigh the Communist Party, and for one of the reasons why they are so concerned. So even as a nation politic... China is proactively trying to squelch Christian growth, but unsuccessfully. 
We know Muslims as a religion which go beyond just a national politic, but even extends across many nations, take a very violent approach to their religion. They always have done so. It is very explicit in the Quran that they are to do this. And as we consider, one of the main reasons that even the Jews did not accept Jesus as their Messiah was because of the notion that they had of what the Messiah would be like and how his kingdom would reign when he came. They thought his kingdom would be violent and would violently overthrow their enemies, setting back up David's throne as it was before as a political world leader of the world, overthrowing all the forces against it, much in the way in which the Muslims go about their religion. An old pastor once told me at the very beginning of my ministry, back in 1996 or so, what you win people with is what you win them to. And it's always stuck with me, because if you win people with the gospel, not with tricks, not with shenanigans, not with the marketing, not with humanistic tactics then you win them by the power of the gospel to the gospel life and to holiness. And we see Jesus not only here, but throughout his earthly ministry as one who actually retreats from violence and arguing from being defensive. You don't see Jesus getting into arguments to try to win people into the kingdom. You don't see Jesus over in a corner expressing all of the theology of the prophets and of Moses and of the Psalms in an argumentative way to wrestle people's minds into convincing him that he is Messiah. You don't find him battling out things in a fleshy manner. You don't see him getting angry in a carnal manner. So the question is, why didn't Jesus turn and fight? Why did he withdraw himself on such occasions as this when he knew that the Pharisees were out to destroy him? Why didn't he just stand up to the Pharisees and publicize his claims? And the answer is because Jesus got all of the victory without a single fleshy fight. And that's what I want to address this morning. Messiah's victories without a fleshy fight. I'm using the term fleshy here in terms of uh, this carnal aspect, this, this way of the flesh. There certainly was a spiritual battle, but it certainly wasn't in anything like what we think of in terms of battle or according to how we go about oftentimes the, the, the battles in our flesh argumentative spirit. So where we left off last Lord's Days, we saw Jesus illustrate a point that he was making about the Sabbath by healing a man on the Sabbath. And the end of that passage, it says that the Pharisees went out seeking how they might destroy him. And today we pick right up in verse 15, which begins. And when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from them and from that place. 
Then we read about a great number of people, great crowds. In fact, this is almost like an emphasis in which uh, Matthew has been wanting us to see the multitudes and the crowds. But now he almost brings it to an exclamation point. The great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. And what was going on with Jesus was unprecedented in any era and with any person. And yet with all that he did, he bade people not to go and publicize it. There was not a single prophet nor a single work that was done through a prophet by miracles such as Moses or Elijah, but not a single one that was even close to the amount of miracles and the vast works that Jesus did in the presence of the people that now oppose him. It's in this context that Matthew then quotes the largest portion of the Old Testament that he would quote from his entire gospel, and he quotes it from Isaiah 42, which we read a moment ago, and it is there that I want to turn your attention, and there where we'll find the rest of our time this morning. Isaiah 42. You have your Bibles turned there, please. And if you don't, listen carefully. And while this is preaching, preaching includes teaching, and one of the glorious things that we have in our day and time is we have copies of the written revelation of the Word of God. And I would encourage you to bring your copy to church as we worship and as we not only hear, but we can see the living word as what God through the Spirit has done. Isaiah 42. I would like to go back and read the first four verses, which is the portion that Matthew read, though he's only going to need verse 2 and 3. He quotes all four. I think there's an important reason why he does. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. You need to keep in mind the question that Matthew is trying to address here. The question that he is answering is, why didn't Jesus turn and fight? Why did he withdraw? And that is the question that Matthew is now set upon to answer in this quotation. First of all, notice the The context of Isaiah's prophecy. If we look at the context in which Isaiah 42 is embedded, we see that the passage that immediately precedes Isaiah 42 speaks against the worthlessness of idols. Isaiah 49, verse 41, verse 29 says, Indeed, they are all worthless. They are works of nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. Right in this context of speaking against idols is this wonderful servant song. Because God goes through great lengths throughout all of the Old Testament to expose the worthlessness of idols. 
And what is going on here in Isaiah in contrast with the true God are the worthless idols, the worthless gods. God has been challenged again and again by all the gods of the pagans, and Israel has many times embraced these gods of the pagans rather than the one true God. And I want you to see the genius of what Matthew is doing here in the context that he was expressing the answer to the question of why Messiah did not fight. Because there are parallels going on in Isaiah 42 with what's going on in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus which is the true Messiah, has against him all of his challengers. Jesus is making his claim against the claim of the opposition. And so here we have in a parallel context, the one true God and the opposing pagan gods on the one hand, and we have the one true Messiah and the opposition on the other. So Matthew's use of this particular passage within its context is very revealing as we see it in the context and what Matthew is doing here as it applies to the Messiah. Now let's consider the passage itself. This passage begins in chapter 42, verse 1, is known as one of the servant songs of Isaiah. This is one of four songs in Isaiah that addresses God's servant, and it ends with a song of praise. Those four servant songs, the first one begins here in Isaiah 42, the next one in Isaiah 49, the following in Isaiah 50, and then in Isaiah 53, of which you're very familiar. And the whole passage here before us is preeminently a messianic passage in the face of opposition. And the key for us here is to see how God would deal with challengers in the face of opposition. And that'll give you the answer to why Jesus didn't fight. First thing that we should note that the passage does is it reveals the relationship between the individual and God Himself. Behold, my servant, says God. Behold, my servant. The first thing we need to note about Messiah is that He is God's servant. And being God's servant, the scripture says, I will uphold Him. The term servant here was used for God's own people. But it was especially used for those of particular offices like prophets and priests and kings. They were particularly known as God's ministers or servants. And Messiah would be the particular special servant of God and the only mediator between God and man. But it would be of the person belonging to human nature that the term servant would be addressed. And I think that's an important distinction for us in our Christology, in our 
doctrine of God. As Jesus was God himself, equal to the Father in power and glory and and perfectly similar to the Father, it would be in the humanity of Christ that would be identified as God's servant. Philippians 2, we have this wonderful passage, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And in Christ's servitude, it was a completely voluntary act, but it was God's servant. He goes on to identify the next phrase, my elect, my chosen. He's not only God's servant, but he is God's especially chosen one for this office of Messiah. But notice the source of Christ or the Messiah's power. It is God himself who upholds him. Behold, he says, behold, look, my servant whom I uphold. But the manner in which God upholds him is by by his own spirit. My elect whom I my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And what we have here is the manner of God's power. Of the Messiah's power. Now, as you hear, verse 1 I have put my spirit upon him. This is the one in whom my soul delights. That probably echoes in your mind of another passage in Scripture that you will gravitate to of when you're thinking about Jesus' own baptism. We are immediately drawn to Jesus' baptism where the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. When Jesus is being baptized, it is then he is entering into his public ministry and he is empowered by the Spirit for that ministry as Messiah. For the mediator. And we see Yahweh's emotional response to him. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And it is important to note that the role of Jesus that he carried out as Messiah identifies with his role as a mediator between God and man. This is part of his servant ministry. To be qualified for that role between being the only mediator between God and man, the Messiah himself had to be both God and he had to be human. And to fulfill that role here on the earth where humans dwell, where the first Adam fell, he would be empowered with the spirit. But unlike old prophets, priests and kings, he would be empowered without measure. John 334 says. The Old Testament, there were these offices. We're supposed to learn something from these prophets and priests and kings. These offices of mediation are ones that God had appointed. We know that the king would be one appointed by God who would rule over his people. 
protecting them and providing the government. We know that a prophet would be one that was chosen out from among God's people to represent God to the people. And that's why they often spoke with the authority, thus saith the Lord. A priest would be one of those offices that would be chosen, a man be chosen out from among God's people, but to represent the people before the face of God. So you had all these representations of office. But all of these were messiahs with a small letter M. The Messiah itself is a word that means literally to spread a liquid over. The liquid was most often olive oil and the objects of which it was spread were most often people and things. And hence the term anointed comes about. And so that way we have this the anointed. Messiah means that which is anointed. The messiahs of the Old Testament were anointed for their office and the oil of their anointing symbolized the spirit of God, which empowered them for their office. And when Jesus was baptized, the spirit of God came down upon him in the form of a dove as he was anointed. And this was the messiahs empowering to carry out his earthly ministry and fulfill his role perfectly and successfully. Just a little sidebar as I thought about that. At Jesus' own baptism, which was really an identification of his ritual cleansing of a priest as he enters into the ministry of his priesthood. And as we see this identification going on in behalf of his people, he is chosen out from among his people, and that's why He went through the baptism of John, identifying with the people who needed to be baptized into repentance, though he himself personally did not. Now he is now able to represent the people before God, and he enters in his public ministry. But he was anointed with the Spirit of God, which has always been identified as oil in all of the other offices. You know, it's the early church, and by the way, this is just a sidebar, that we have dates back to even uh, testimonies from Tertullian and even to the second century, has always used uh, oil at the time of baptism. The early church, back to the second century, at least that we have identified, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Western Roman Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, Protestant, the Armenian church, not Armenian church, the Armenian church, the Assyrian church, and the Lutheran church have all used anointing oil called chrism at baptism to show the empowering of the Spirit on all who are baptized in the New Covenant era as we see that the Spirit is not just poured out on the offices, but poured out upon all of the members of the church. And to be honest, I haven't personally thought through that very deeply, but I wonder why we don't do that. I've had people who are sick call me up and say, Pastor, will you come and pray with me and for me and anoint me with oil as the scriptures say in James chapter 5? And I say, sure I will. And I do. 
So we do have, and we see oil in other places, like when elders pray for the sick. We also see it in other spheres, perhaps maybe not as common to our own, but at the coronation of kings, which perhaps maybe you will observe at least one in your lifetime, shortly, but maybe not. (laughs) And also in the ordination of ministers to continue to show forth the The power of the Holy Spirit is the only power that we have in which to minister, but God has promised it to us. But back to my point, the source of Jesus' power for the ministry was the Spirit. And that's what the oil identified. That is what gives the very term Messiah or Christ. But He is the Messiah, the Anointed One. And that's what set Messiahs apart was the symbolism of the Spirit in which they were to accomplish their work. And when the Messiah would come, He would be empowered with the Spirit. And as John says, without measure. For those of you who contemplate covenant theology and you wonder about the the triune arrangement that we sometimes refer to as the covenant of redemption... And you have the Father making a covenant with the Son to redeem mankind. You wonder where the Spirit is. He's right here. The Father had promised the Son the Spirit without measure. It was always in some measure to old prophets and old priests and old kings. But now, without measure, promised to the Son. And we have a perfect Trinitarian work going on for the redemption of God's people in this eternal, holy arrangement before the foundation of the world for you and me. But again, we still haven't really addressed the why Messiah didn't come fighting in the way that the Jews expected. But notice the next thing in the passage that he did come to do. And this is important. This stands out because three times it's mentioned in four short verses. And it's the one term that brings our attention to the very thing that Messiah came to do. And that word is justice. Justice is mentioned in verse one. I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He mentions it again in verse three. He will bring forth justice for the truth. And again in verse 4, he will not fail or be discouraged till he's established justice in the earth. And one of the reasons why Matthew, why he only needed verse 2 and 3, envelops this in a broader context and quotes all four verses is to establish the very thing that the Jews knew that Messiah was going to do and the very thing that they were questioning Jesus was doing, but he was bringing forth justice. There should be no mistake that what Messiah came to do, what he is doing and what he will complete in his doing is bringing justice to this earth in its entirety. And that's really good news for God's people. That's what we long for. I am afraid that we have somewhat of a narrow view of what justice is, so let me mention once again to us that justice is really setting everything right that's wrong in this fallen world. 
yes, it includes vindicating the righteous when they have been unjustly treated by the wicked. It includes the punishment of evildoers, yes. It includes the setting aright of the wrongs of the nations, yes. But it also includes dealing with the malignant forces of evil behind all of the visible world. And it includes all those things, but it is even broader than that. Do you know justice is a term that's used in the building of the tabernacle? Coming off the heels of Holy Week and our consideration of the tabernacle and the temple and the people of God and the body of Christ. That should actually kind of resonate with some of that thinking. When Moses was up on the mountain, not only did God give Moses the the Ten Commandments, the, the summation of the law of God. But he gave them the plan. He gave them the blueprints for the tabernacle. That was the whole the, the main focus, I should say, of the book of Exodus is to establish this place where heaven and earth would intersect, where God would meet with his people and this mediation would be shown that even though God is holy, he's come to a fallen world and now has made a way to come into his presence and approach him. And the Bible uses the term judgment for that pattern or the blueprints for the tabernacle. When Moses comes down to the people from off the mountain in Exodus 24, the Bible describes the scene when it says, So Moses came and he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. Later in chapter 26, when discussing the construction of the tabernacle, God says in Exodus 26, 30, I'm only giving you two references here, and this is the third one, second one. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its judgment. Which you were shown on the mountain. And the word judgment is used in even the plan, the blueprints of the tabernacle. Now, God's judgment on this earth is really a blueprint for how things ought to be. He has a blueprint for life. He has a blueprint for the world. He has a blueprint for marriage. Yes, he has a blueprint for how everything ought to be on this earth, how life ought to be lived. And if everyone would simply follow God's blueprint, it would be exactly what we pray for when we pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. See, the tabernacle was really a pattern, an earthly pattern for a heavenly reality. The tabernacle was patterned after the garden and the permanent fixture of the tabernacle was the temple, but then the the transcendent temple, tabernacle, was with Jesus and his people himself who become the temple. And this heaven will then come down upon this earth and fill this earth with the glory of the Lord. You've got a blueprint. And justice is very much a part of that blueprint. Where God, through the Messiah, will bring the blueprint down. God, in the Messiah, will right every wrong. He will set 
right all the things that are wrong, and He will restore this fallen world to the place of creative beauty and splendor, so that, as Habakkuk would say, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But now notice, in getting to the answer to the question, how Messiah will do that. Why did Messiah not fight? How is he going to do this? The manner now in which he brings forth justice. Oh, he will bring justice. But how will he do it? And the way he will do it will overthrow all the wicked oppressors of God's people and it will restore beauty and peace to this earth. Verses 2 and 3 are the focal points of Matthew's prophecy and that which we now turn. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Here we have a description of how. He is actually going to bring about the victory and bring about the justice upon all of the earth. We have heard his mission of bringing justice, but now we see his method and we notice five negatives. What he will not do when he does this, he will not cry out. He will not come in the pomp and the splendor as earthly kings do with noise and commotion at their coronation. He will come quietly without noise or hoopla. He will not raise his voice. He will not create disturbance. He is a quiet and peaceful man. He does not argue. He will not cause his voice to be heard in the street. He will not make a great noise or demand a great fanfare. And he will not a bruised reed break. He does not wish to break off altogether that which is already bruised and crushed, is the idea of the metaphor. In other words, this speaks to his gentleness. His mildness. He will support the weak and the feeble. He will not quench a smoking flax. The metaphor is one of lamps. But a lamp whose wick is not cleanly burning. And it gives off quite an irritating smoke into the room. And yet, even with this nuisance of a flame... The Messiah will not extinguish it. This really speaks of the long suffering of the Messiah as he puts up with us. You could be the most quarrelsome person, but Messiah will not quench you, is the idea. It reveals the way he deals with the opposition. He will not quickly quench the smoking flax. But they all miss that important prophecy, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, many of the Jews, and it was the very reason that explains why Messiah faces opposition 
and how he faces opposition by not coming out fighting in the way they expected. But be assured from verse 4, which Matthew continues to quote, the approach of Messiah was sure to succeed. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. The coastlands meaning the Gentiles. That was the region all along because they were all Gentiles, Tyre and Sidon and all these others. Jesus the Messiah came to bring his kingdom, but he came to bring in his kingdom upon this earth with quite a different character than what fallen humanity was used to and what they were expecting. But this was prophesied. This was not to catch them by surprise. See, what Messiah would win people with would be justice and peace and righteousness, and therefore the character that his people would be one to would be of the same quality. What Jesus came to do is establish a new humanity upon earth. When man fell in the garden and the image of God was marred in him, he became something less than the perfection of humanity He became less human, if you can speak about it that way, because he was now completely fallen and all of his faculties were depraved. But Jesus would come to renew and restore all of that. He would come to conquer the old kingdoms, yes, but in a very new way. His kingdom would be one of love. And one of peace. And this is why he began his preaching of the gospel with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit what? The earth. A quote right out of the Psalter. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, he declares that his people, this new humanity, there will be a, a new kind of person, so supernatural, empowered with the Spirit, that they not only would love, but they could love their enemies genuinely and pray for them. He declares that his people would be a new kind of person that he would create. A people that would establish justice in the earth. The instrument of God that he is using here to right all of the wrongs is the church. Without fighting, Without arguing, but in meekness, in gentleness, and long-suffering. And that's why he says, blessed are those who curse you, or blessed are you when those curse you. And you are to do good to those who hate you. You're to pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you might show that you are Sons of your Father in heaven. It's a different way of thinking. 
It's a different way of living. It's a different way of humanity that we know, that we see, that we've been cultivated with, that we've been indoctrinated with around us about, and we were born not into this kind of humanity. And see, the point that Matthew is making is that Jesus the Messiah did not fight back or argue because it was always prophesied that he would not come in the manner of fallen humanity, but rather to establish a different kind of humanity, a humanity of justice. The blueprint of God coming here upon this earth now being played out in his people through Messiah. A humanity on this earth that would be triumphant in the very character of their Savior, Messiah. A humanity that is redeemed from the fall. A humanity that is empowered with the Spirit. A humanity that wins and is victorious without a fleshy fight. This is why Paul would exhort ministers in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach and patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having taken captive by him to do his will. This is the way of Messiah. You'll never argue a person into the kingdom of God. You'll never argue a person unto righteousness. You're trying to use a fleshy tactic to do a godly thing. It will not work. We're in two different worlds. We're in two different realms. We're in two different humanities. The very notion of arguing somebody into the kingdom of God is contrary to the very kingdom and the nature of the kingdom of Christ. It is this very manner of Messiah that is upsetting the Chinese government who cannot figure out what to do to squelch this uprising and this this growth of Christians. If God's people would simply get in a fleshy battle with the Chinese government, it would all be over. Chinese would know how to deal with that. But that's not what's going on. This is the reason the Muslims will not and cannot overtake the world. And while the Muslims in Iran alone in that one nation are being converted to Christ, are estimated to be not in the thousands and not in the tens of thousands But some who've personally been there say in the millions. And you don't hear about that. So what does that mean for you and me? It means we are to live in the manner of Messiah. We are to walk in the spirit that we would not fulfill the lust or the desires of the flesh. It means to be of a meek and quiet spirit.
See, this takes a lot of faith and trust that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. But ladies, do you not know that the scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 3 that even if you dwell with an unbelieving, unregenerate man, that he might be won by your quiet and meek spirit, not by your nagging, not by your fleshy approach, not by thwarting all of his desires with your own, not by a strong arm of the flesh, not by the, the quiet and meek spirit of Christ wins the battle without a fleshy fight. Because you're a different kind of person. And that goes for men as well. You are a restored humanity. And the manner to turn the world upside down is the way that Christ has brought forth in his own ministry. He was a suffering servant, but he was a victorious servant. He was filled with the spirit and he did not fight in a human, fleshy, carnal way. But he was victorious. And his way of victory is the pattern for how we need to live. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. It is high. And we have a hard time attaining it. Even with the illumination of the spirit. Because our flesh is so weak. Even when our spirit is willing. So grant us, Lord, we pray, to be shaped by the revelation of your word. And we pray that we would live in the manner and conduct of the spirit. That as we grow in grace, the old man and his deeds are put off. And we become a more gentle person, a more humble person. Our spirit would be at greater peace. There would be love, abundant and joy that would be evident. That we would suffer long and be gentle and kind. All of those fruit that we see evident in Messiah may be coming forth in greater abundance in our lives as the old flesh is put to death. Grant it, Lord, we pray, because we know we all need it. And we look to you for this salvation to be granted to us because it is a way that is foreign to our, our own flesh, but yet a way that is characteristic of our Messiah. So save us, Lord, from ourselves. Save us out of the old man. And save us into this glorious new man, renewed in Christ, where all things are new, and through us that you would beautify this world with the gospel power. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.